An interesting scripture reading, you may be wondering, now what on earth does that have to do with maybe Father's Day, and more particularly, what does it have to do with uh, faith with boots on? Well, um, today it's actually, the subtitle is, If I Should Die Before I Wake. Now some of you will remember this in your own childhood, but one of the very first prayers I learned as a child, now I was raised by my grandparents, and so I did learn how to say, come Lord Jesus, science of God, second who wants to be sure to I could pray it in German, come Lord Jesus, or, and I could say, oh, give thanks. But the other first prayer that I think probably my grandparents uh, raised me to pray uh, was uh, a prayer that helped millions of children over the years to get ready for bed. And you probably know it by heart. If you don't, I think it's probably going to be up here on the screen. It goes this way. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And I have a feeling that the first time I ever got to that third line, I thought, oh my gosh, why are you having some little kid who's just in the, in the fresh bloom of life talking about if I die before I wake? And just still today kind of gives me a little bit of shivers. Uh, it kind of seems odd that little children in the springtime of life uh, should mention death in their bedtime prayer. But if you think about it, it's really not all that odd. And the reason I say that is because death comes to all of us sooner or later. Sometimes it comes to children. And sometimes it comes in the night before we ever wake up. We just go to sleep one night and the next day we're not there. Now to say that is just to face some certain reality. And unless Jesus comes back in all of his glory, I mean... I pray for that all the time. Crack the sky, blow the horn, send the angels, let's take us all home. But unless Jesus does that first, guess what? We're all going to end up doing what somebody calls box time or urn time. One way or the other, that's how we're probably going to go out. So death comes sooner for some, later for others. But like I said, if Jesus doesn't come back first, it's going to happen to all of us eventually. Now the question, so, is not... Will we die? Because the answer is always yes. The question really ought to be, how will we face our own death? So today we're going to take a look back at Hebrews, that scripture that Laird just read to us a little bit ago, where we find three really uh, brief snapshots from the end of life of three Old Testament characters. <coughs> and perhaps, you know, if you know a little bit about, about the Bible, you'll know about these three guys. And there's only one verse for each of them. In verse 21, it talks about Isaac. In verse 21, it talks about Jacob. In verse 22, it talks about uh, Joseph. Now, these three patriarchs, if you were, these Old Testament heroes of faith, had a couple of things in common. One of them is what they did, they did by faith. The second thing is what they did, they did in the last hours of their life. Now, all three of these guys were really old. They were all pretty <laughs> infirm, if you will. They were on the edge of death, or as someone said, one foot in the grave and the other one on a banana peel. Uh, they, and so we're going to take a close look at what they did before they died and see if this has anything to do with us today. And maybe it has something to say to us who are fathers or 
grandfathers or maybe great grandfathers or whatever. So there are there are three generations: Isaac the father, Jacob the son, and Joseph the grandson. And we're going to take a look at their end of life statements and discover how faith shows itself at the end of life. Now let's start with Isaac. And Isaac here is talking about faith for his children. And again, he, he, it says, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. Now, Genesis doesn't tell us a whole lot about Isaac, surprisingly. Uh, he's kind of a plain and colorless guy. It's kind of hard to even get a handle on, on Isaac's personality because he kind of lives in the shadow of his famous dad, Abraham, and his famous son, who is Jacob. And as you read his story in Genesis, you see that he was manipulated not only by his wife, she must have been a a piece of work, but also was manipulated by both of his sons, Jacob and Esau. And worse yet, he seems totally helpless or totally oblivious to being able to do anything about it. Now, because he had a strong father in Abraham, a protective mother with Sarah, a domineering wife, Rebecca, and a couple of weasels as sons, Jacob and Esau, he never really ever establishes his own identity. But Scripture still says, by faith, Isaac. By faith, Isaac. So he must have done something right. And at what point do we see his faith in action? Well, surely we begin to see it when Mama decides the younger should get a blessing, and so she dresses him up, putting goat skins all over him, so that he could go in and pretend to be his hairy older brother. Some of you know that story. When I first heard that, I rubbed a goat on occasion when I was young. I can't imagine somebody being quite that, quite that hairy. Uh, but surely we see it when he, he puts the goat skins at his mother's instruction, fools Isaac into thinking that he, Jacob, is actually the older brother uh, Esau. So Isaac ends up, because he can't see very well, he's an old dude, uh, so he gives the blessing, uh, he gives Jacob the blessing that he intended to give to the older boy Esau. Now later, Esau comes back, in fact, Scripture basically says, Jacob went out one door and Esau came in the other, he was ticked off. I don't know that ticked off is the word that was used in Scripture, Uh, there may have been other terminology used in the ancient Hebrew. But he asked his father for a blessing. And his dad says, "Uh, whoops, I already gave it away. (laughs) But I'll give you a secondary blessing. And this is a real crucial moment in, in the biblical narrative. Isaac knows he has been tricked into giving Jacob the blessing from God. Now, everything about the way this was all done was underhanded. It was deceitful. It was conniving, whatever word you want to put. It was just dead wrong. Yet Isaac refuses to reverse what he had done. If you go back to Genesis 27, he says, I blessed him, and indeed he's going to stay blessed. Now later, he calls back the older boy and says, I already gave away the big blessing. I got a little smaller one I can give you. Now you kind of look at that story and you say, man, what a messed up deal here. But see, this is an example of what I would call the overruling grace of God. He didn't try to reverse the blessing that was obtained through deceit because he believed that God was somehow 
involved in a way, if you will, in this trickery with his wife and his one other son. And so he kind of affirms God's choice of Jacob over Esau and God's blessing of Jacob, even though he didn't deserve it. And even his personal desire to still somehow bless Esau could not overcome God's desire to bless Jacob first. Now, what do we learn from that? It's like, maybe, well, thank God we didn't get born into that family. Well, that's not the lesson to be learned there. I think the, the lesson here is the sovereignty of God working through sinful human beings. That God still works through us even when we do things that are not on the up and up. See, Isaac understood God's will comes first and we need to bow before it even if we don't understand what God is up to. So did Isaac have faith? Yes, he did. And he was strong in the end when it counted. He made sure that, as according to what we read before, what Lair read to us, that his children were blessed regarding the future. Now, Isaac didn't accomplish a whole lot from a worldly point of view. But he passed his faith along to his children. And in the end, I'm speaking as a father and a grandfather today, that's one of the best things you can do is to pass your faith along to the next generation. Now, I don't want to uh, romanticize this story too much. After all, Jacob and Esau never really ever got along very well for the rest of their lives. Uh, Jacob's sons fought amongst themselves. Uh, and probably a lesson to learn, too, there's no such thing as a perfect family. And sometimes fractures occur that time and prayer never really go away. But when our families are not what we kind of hope they would be, we can still serve the Lord. See, God blessed a whole bunch of imperfect people in the Old Testament, and through them, he actually accomplished what he wanted done. And that, that ought to encourage all of us, just to think that we, a bunch of broken people, God can still accomplish something through us for future generations. So we're just a bunch of imperfect people living in an imperfect world, and God loves us in spite of our warts, our bumps, our blemishes, all of our imperfections. So we can rejoice that God honored Isaac's faith, even though it took place in the midst of a pretty dysfunctional family. Let's take a look at the second guy. The second guy here is Jacob. He's praying for his grandchildren. And here again, we see hear these words, By faith, Jacob, when he was dying blessed each of Joseph's sons, those were his grandkids, and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Now, at this point in time, Jacob is an old man. Uh, he's pretty much blind. Uh, the King James, I like how the King James puts it, it says, uh, jo- Jacob was a dying. <laughs> it sounds like a southern, a southern colloquial. He was, he was a dying. Now, one by one, he calls his sons. He gives them a blessing. Uh, a blessing that was suited to them. But when he comes to Joseph, he blesses Joseph, and then he blesses Joseph's two sons, his grandkids, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, the storing of the ble- of the, these blessings that he puts on his grandson is really kind of interesting because he did something rather unexpected. Now, Jacob wanted to, to bless Manasseh. He was the older one. With his right hand is a sign of a greater blessing. But at the last second, he crosses his arms and blesses the younger one and then blesses the older one. 
Now, in Scripture, I'm going to paraphrase Scripture, um, Joseph was ticked off. (laughs) Because he wanted the older one to receive the blessing. But Jacob could not change his blessing. Now, some of you who are younger, anybody here, a young, the younger child into your family? Well, Nancy, I know you are. Any other younger ones? Okay. Well, I got good news for you. Um, Isaac was a, a, the Bible's full of hope for younger kids. I mean, after all, Isaac was a younger child. Uh, so was Jacob, so was Joseph, so was Moses, so was Gideon, and so was King David. They were all younger people, and God still saw fit to bless them as well. So in this blessing, the younger over the older, Jacob teaches us that God is no respecter of persons. He exalts those who honor him regardless of their background or their birth order. Now, very often... It's almost through the overlooked people of this world that God does what God wants to do. See, Jacob knew that his, his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, had been raised in the lap of luxury in Egypt. And because of Joseph's exalted position, they had been reared to live again in the lap of luxury in this pagan world and to enjoy all of the, all of the glories of Egypt. But I think Jacob looked into the future, thanks to God, and saw a day when his descendants were going to leave Egypt and go back to Canaan. And he wanted to make sure that his grandsons embraced their spiritual heritage. It's kind of like saying, if you stay in Egypt, you will not be blessed. At some point, you've got to leave Egypt and you've got to go to the promised land. I often think about this when I talk to prisoners. You're living in the land of Egypt, and someday God is going to get you out of Egypt and send you to the promised land, but returning to Egypt is never going to be an option, okay? And that's exactly what he's telling them here. He's doing this by faith because he judged that God would keep his word and that the ragged tents of Canaan were going to be a whole lot better for these boys than living in a palace somewhere in Egypt. So Jacob's faith is as strong as it comes as he comes to the end of his life. Now, how could he be filled with such confidence to do that, to, to do this, send them all back out someplace else? Well, years before, um, well, after all, he was a, he was a schemer. Um, he was a born cheater, a compulsive nip manipulator. In fact, actually, his name means supplanter, heel grabber. And so he'd been kind of a weasel his whole life. How did he manage to do the right thing here? Well, you know, all through his life he had worked the angles to get ahead. Years later he deceived his father. He cheated his brothers. It was such a checkered past. How could this guy be so happy at the end of his life? Well, the answer goes to the very heart of the gospel. And the heart of the gospel simply says God held him guilty for nothing. And I don't doubt that during those long years... While most of his family is living in Egypt, knowing that Joseph has now been sold into slavery, that he thought about his dead son. I think he felt guilty. He probably thought that maybe uh, Joseph's fate was his problem. But in the end, it didn't really matter because the Bible says, what did he do? He worshipped by leaning on his staff. And there's some great, you know, you can go back and 
I'd leave this up to Jeff if he were here today. He could take you all the way back to the staff and talk about the importance, you know, this, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me way back in the Old Testament. The importance of people leaning on their staff, leaning on their place of position. It would be kind of like a pastor in his dying days leaning over the pulpit and making one last blessing or one last benediction. With joy, he thought about the happy ending of his life, a life that had been up to this point filled with sadness and anger and betrayal and separation and loneliness and manipulation. And I take great comfort in that because in the same way, God takes our wicked past and places it on his son who takes it for us. See, God works through all of our sinful choices that we make in life. And believe me, we were sinning come out of the womb. Well, we can back it up. It says, in sin my mother conceived me. So from the point of conception, we've been sinful human beings. And our our sinful choices stand in opposition to God's ultimate divine plan. But this doesn't make sin less sinful, but it does demonstrate the glory of God in taking extremely sinful people, restoring them, and accomplishing good things for him. So that's the middle one. We've got son, grandsons. Let's go to Joseph. Joseph, this is a prayer for a distant future. Verse 22, By faith Joseph, when his end was near, now understand he's still in Egypt, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. In other words, he left some funeral plans behind. Now, he was old, he was dying, but Joseph saw past Egypt into the land of Canaan, into the distant future. He knew that someday God would keep his promise and deliver the Israelites out of Egypt and would give them their home, a homeland of their own. And because he believed so firmly in that, he instructed the Israelites, don't leave my bones here. They're going to mummify me because I'm an Egyptian Uh, They're going to do that, but I want you to take those bones, but make sure you carry those bones back, that mummified body, and give me a proper burial in the promised land. Now, this took a few years. Maybe they had to pass that that thing around in the family. Who's got the bones this week? (laughs) We still got Joseph's mummy? No, we still got it. So, the question is, how could he be so sure about the future? Well, I'll give you two reasons. First of all, he knew that God had promised his great-grandfather Abraham his own promised land. That's back in Genesis 12. And second, his own life proves that God kept his promises. He knew that Israel did not belong in Egypt, and he didn't want his bones to stay in Egypt when the Jews left for Canaan. Now, on the outside, Joseph looked like an Egyptian. I mean, his brothers didn't even recognize him. They saw he probably had that... You know, whatever, the way Egyptians looked back in that day. Uh, but on the inside, he was still an Israelite. But he never forgot who he was or where he came from. Now, in Exodus 13, it tells us that Moses, when he left Egypt, took the bones along with him. And years later, he passed those bones along to Joshua. And it was Joshua's job then to bury the bones at a place called Shechem. So Joseph lived and died without ever hearing about Moses and Joshua. He knew nothing about the great things those two guys did. But in his old age, God gave him the faith to believe that somehow God was in charge of everything. 
He knew that his future didn't belong in Egypt. His future belonged in the promised land. Reminds me of a hymn. I'm but a stranger here in Egypt, but heaven, Israel, is my promised land. See, Joseph really is saying, I may be dying, but I believe that one day God will keep his promises. I want to be there when it happens, so don't leave me behind here in Egypt. Bury me in the promised land. So what does this say to us? Well, I think it says, nothing of God dies when a Christ follower dies. See, we die, but God's promises go on. Our God is a God of, well, the past, the present, but... Our God is also the God of the future. He's the God of generations yet to come. We don't know how many generations there's still going to be. Sometimes, you know, you talk about today and you think, oh, maybe God is about ready to wipe the slate and the everything and say, we're out of here. But we have no idea how long this is going to go. I, I remember uh, visiting with one of my members at Lord of Life a number of years ago. And... Uh, his father had been hospitalized, and I hadn't seen him for about a week, and I, I caught him in church, and I said, how's your dad? And his, son was, his son's response, as best I remember, was, he's dying full of life. He's dying full of life. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty grand thing to be able to die full of life. And that's, the, that's, that, that's possible for those people who know Jesus is their Lord and their Savior. So now, knowing all of these stories, and you go home and read it all about in Genesis and get, get all the stuff in between, what is it you and I can actually take away from this? Well, a couple of lessons. Here's lesson number one. The greatest thing that you and I can do is to pass your faith along to your children and grandchildren. See, Abraham gave it to Isaac, Isaac gave it to Jacob, Jacob gave it to Joseph, and Joseph gave his faith to the whole nation of Israel. See, friends, the Christian faith is not just a sprint. It's uh, not really a marathon either. It's a relay race. Do you realize that? Your life is nothing more than a relay race. And you're only one member of the team... Somebody handed it to you, and you're going to hand it on to the next generation, and prayerfully they'll hand it on to the generation after that, and that, and that. Now, I can look back at my own life. I happened to sit by a guy at the Good Dads Conference this last week. He and I had something in common. Both of us were raised by our grandparents. That's not a bad, you know, in, in a way you go, that's not a bad deal, because my grandparents and his grandparents... Both raised us in Christian situations. See, I have faith today because somebody put me in a position where faith grew in my life. Now, they didn't work faith in me. The Holy Spirit did that. But as Christian people, they raised me in a Christian situation. And I know that the baton of faith now needs to be passed on to the very next generation. And as the years quickly pass, I'm seeing more and more that passing my faith along to Eric and Terry and my grandson Josh is the work of an entire lifetime. But I'm thankful I have somebody who's doing it with me. We haven't got around yet to Mother's Day. 
but mamas and grandmas, that responsibility as well. Here's the second lesson. The saddest thing that can happen is become bitter in your old age. I don't want to be a bitter old man. And I pray to God, for your sake, I won't be. <laughs> but we've all seen it to happen, happen to people that we know and love. They become bitter. They become angry. They're filled with resentment because life didn't turn out the way they thought it should. You see, Abraham had a promise from God, but he never saw it completely fulfilled. Isaac had the same promise, but he died without seeing it fulfilled. Jacob had the same promise, and he died in Egypt. And Joseph had the same promise and died in Egypt too. And so if anybody could complain or be bitter, I would say it would be those three guys, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. They lived and died with the promise unfulfilled, but they never gave up hope. See, that's the third lesson I think we learn here. The happiest way to live is to realize that God's work is way bigger than you are or I am. See, that's why Isaac saw God's hand here at work in spite of the deviousness of his wife and his boys. And that's why Jacob blessed his grandchildren before he died. That's why Jacob said, don't leave my bones in Egypt. Get them back to the promised land. See, friend, we may never see everything that we dream about in this life. I've had people... It came up at this good dad thing the other day. What dreams do you still have in life? Well, I got a few. They're not particularly big ones, but I have a few things I hope would still happen. I may never live to see all that. But, you know, in a way, that's okay. It doesn't matter. Maybe my son will see them. Maybe my daughter will see them. Maybe my grandson will see some things that I have in mind come true. See, we may climb and climb and never reach the summit of all the stuff that we had designed to do when we finally got all grown up. (laughs) We may never accomplish it all. But it is given to all of us, every last one of us here today, to live faithfully day day after day so that when we are gone, other people can perhaps stand on our shoulders and see things that we never saw. So there's a great goal. To have dreams so big that they can't possibly be fulfilled in our lifetime. Our family has a favorite song. I thought about playing it today, thought about inflicting it on Joel, but that's okay. I'm, not, I'm only going to do part of it. I'm not going to sing it, by the way. That ruined, that, that, that ruined the song. But uh, this is a song that I've known for a long time. And we kind of introduced it to Nancy's family a number of years ago. The name of the song is Find Us Faithful. It's sung by Steve Green. You can go to YouTube and go, Steve Green, Find Us Faithful. And so every time this family gathers together, we sing that song. When Nancy's father passed away a few years ago at his funeral, we sang Find Us Faithful. Uh, The Miller family singers go and entertain at at the uh, home where Nancy's mom still lives. And we always end up by singing Find Us Faithful. We'll be back up there in August because Nancy's mom, who was here a couple weeks ago, will turn 100. And I know we're going to do a big performance. The Miller Family Singers are a very popular group at Westminster. And I know that the last song that will be sung is Find Us Faithful. I want to just read some of the words of this song to you. We are pilgrims on the journey of this narrow road. 
and those who've gone before us line the way, cheering on the faithful, encouraging the weary, their lives and stirring testament to God's sustaining grace. Surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run the race, not only for the prize, but as those who've gone before us, let us leave to those behind us the heritage of faithfulness passed on through godly lives. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footprints that we leave lead them to believe, and the lives we live inspire them to obey. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. I hope this isn't new news to you, but guess what? God's plans are bigger than any of ours. God's plans are bigger than ours. Our part is simply to live for him and to pass our faith along to the next generation some way. To live in such a way that those things for which we are praying right now and those things that we dream about can still be passed along after we are gone. I wrote one last thing when I wrote this sermon. This is what I wrote. It's not really a great ending, but I just said, cheer up, the best is yet to come. That's a great way to end a sermon. Maybe we need to sing about that. We need to sing about we as children of the Heavenly Father.